Could you uh, please take your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 2. Uh, Pastor Ken just prayed for uh, Becky Howard. I'm sure many of you know Brian and Becky. Um, she is really in some uh, tough situation right now. Just keep her in your prayers. She really needs God's grace right now. And, and some of you know Herb Poling as well. Herb Poling uh, used to attend our church, but he's dear friends with many of us, and he is on hospice care right now. Um, and so if you can pray for him and his family. He's, he's going through a tough time. So there are some very serious and critical things in our church life. If you could really take them to God today and specifically pray for Becky today. I read this quote uh, this past week, and it was talking about one of the main purposes of preaching. The writer says, people are starving for the greatness of God. People are starving for the greatness of God. They go on to write, preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul, which says, show me thy glory. People are starving for the greatness of God. I believe this is, to, this is absolutely true. I really do. I, I think people come to church for a lot of reasons, but primarily, primarily, they long for God's greatness. And as a preacher, I want to be able to, to do this, to... Um, describe, explain, and even convince you of how great God is. But often it's hard. It's a hard task. How do you convince people that God is great with just mere words? Do I try to blow your mind by describing his creative genius as Isaiah 55, he, or 40, he who brings out the starry host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he's strong in power and not one is missing? It's amazing to think about. Am I to terrify you with his extraordinary power that he can melt mountains with his mere breath? Do I have us dwell upon his reign over all things that he's just superior? The more I teach and live, the more I find in the human experience Isaiah 55, 8 is true. God's ways are not man's ways. So while we humans think the normal route to impress each other is by comparing size power, or even beauty. God chooses to reveal his glory, I think, in much more mysterious ways. His ways are subtle. They are hidden often. Because I'm convinced his glory is so precious, he really unveils it to those who have eyes to hear, eyes to see, and ears to hear. Meaning, if you really don't care about him, I'm not sure he's going to disclose his greatness to you. Today we are going to look at a story. It's a story that's second nature. You know, you know this story, probably more than any other story in the Bible. If you just read it for the first time, it's really not impressive at all, truthfully. However, I think this story, when understood rightly, reveals God's glory, His greatness, in, in a very backwards or unsuspecting way. Strange, it's mysterious, but it is great. 
It is the story that you and I retell every single Christmas, the birth of Jesus. We find it in Luke, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And you know this story, so just follow along with me as I read. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. In those days, in those days we're referring to, remember Elizabeth just gave, had a, had a child, they named him John the Baptist. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, or house of bread, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place them in the inn. How many of you have never heard that before? <laughs> Ever in your life? We know this inside and out. This is the greatest story they say ever told, and I think it is. We've heard endless songs, angels from the realms of glory, a little town of Bethlehem, silence of the night while shepherds watch their flocks. Even we've heard crazy, speculative little side stories of a little boy drumming. I'll tell you what, if my wife was in labor and a little boy came drumming right after the baby was born, his rat-a-tat-towing or tum-a-tum-tumming, I would kick that out of Dodge. None of that. I'm also sure many of you have heard hundreds of sermons on this story. I've heard sermons on the inhospitality of the innkeeper. I've heard sermons trying to figure out the exact number of wise men that came to visit. Was it three or 300? I have heard sermons on the star. Was it a miracle, a comet, or a planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter? What was it? A lot of speculation. I think this story, next to Easter, has been told more than any other story in a Christian church. And so as I approached this, and I knew it was coming in Luke, and I also knew it wasn't coming during Christmas, I wrestled with how, because we know familiarity breeds contempt. Meaning, I've heard it so much, I don't want to hear it anymore. I really don't. So to avoid contempt, how do I put a new spin on it, I wonder? How do I change it? How do I squeeze more glory out of the Christmas lemon? Squeeze to the bottom. Instead of trying to be unique, a good teacher of Scripture simply has one question to answer. When he takes a passage, what's the question? Here it is. How do I put in the context of how Luke sees this? How does Luke see this? What is the context? What is he trying to communicate with this story? It's really not a big story. I believe we are given a clear line a chapter earlier from Mary, his mother. Mary prophesies or sings a song about this birth. And I want you to look at Luke chapter 1. And I think verse 52 explains this story incredibly well. Remember Mary is it's the Magnificat. She's talking about, wow, my soul glorifies the Lord. And then she goes on to this diatribe. She says it a number of times how she is of humble estate and he's going to raise her up. And verse 52 is very clear. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. 
and exalted those of humble estate. He has, in verse 51, shown strength with his arm. How does he do this? By scattering the proud in their hearts. Throughout the rest of the book of Luke, if you study it, I've been reading it, oh, I've probably been through about five times to study this. Jesus has come to show a different way, specifically how to display power and greatness. It's all through the book of Luke. It isn't through brute force. God's power isn't ultimately displayed through despotic power where he subdues everybody. It's not. He wins through meekness. It's all through the book of Luke. Jesus has come to topple the mighty so the humble will someday rule. That's what Mary says. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble, humble estate. The theme will come up again and again in Luke, and it's never more exquisitely displayed than the birth of God as a baby. The humble has come. Well, look how Luke 2, 1 through 3 begins. It begins with a very oppressive historical backdrop. It talks about Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus sends out this registration for all the world to register the what would be the Western Roman world, to register really for not just census purposes so they can number people, but for tax purposes. Caesar Augustus was issuing a decree that all family heads in the world needed to go to their original towns of birth and register. Augustus, otherwise known as Emperor Octavian, was the governing authority of the Roman world. He was the head of the Roman world. And as this passage shows, his word, when he would give his word, it was iron law for all the people. Even reaching down to a little man named Joseph with a teenage wife who's pregnant. His law even reaches down that low and that wide. The name Augustus was given to him after he defeated Mark Anthony in 27 B.C., comes from this Latin word that means to increase. That's what August, August, Augur is a Latin term. It means the illustrious one, the mighty one. The mighty one. It was a title of both religious and political authority. According to Roman beliefs, Augustus, that title symbolized authority over all of humanity. He was, this is Rome. Not only was he in charge over all of humanity, they even deified him where he was in charge of all of nature. He was powerful. Luke is writing to a Greek who understood this. It was at this time also that Augustus began the era of Pax Romana, peace of Rome, that was spread all across the Western world. That's what that means, peace of Rome. And the way that Rome regarded peace, it was regarded not as absence of war, where there's no strife, but the ongoing condition of war, where Rome consistently subdues every nation with power, with a fist to the head. They're, they're bullies in the world. That's their form of peace. Peace through power. Greatness through might. Even in the census of the taxation of the world, 
Augustus did that for revenue for Rome. Glory to Rome. They are great. That's the whole point of Pax Romana. My question is, is this still not the way of the world? Is it not still the way of the world? To the victor goes the spoils. Might makes right. The fittest survive. Even those are philosophical statements. You live by them, believe it or not. You do. Success and power courses through my blood and your blood. It's in us. We want to win. We do. Why do you believe your kids are good, great kids? Because they're better at sports, they're more popular, and they're smarter than the other kids in school. You compare like that. Why are you better than your neighbors? I got a better job. I got a nicer lawn. Did you see my car compared to theirs? Bigger house, see expensive clothes. I just look better. Why is America better than every other country in the face of the earth? Because we have Donald Trump. Get out of here, you protesters. Get out of here. And he goes like that. Get out of here. Wow. Dominance. We're going to win this year. It's in us. It's in us. And the Democrats are just the same. Don't lie to me. We want to win. In this story, however, we find a baby with poor parents, teeny, traveling over the harshest countryside you could ever imagine. If you go there and imagine bringing an eight-month or nine-month pregnant wife through these hills, these barren, hot hills of the Judean desert, it would be... I don't think, I, that's just terrifying to me. Why did they do it? The law demanded it. The law demanded it. Augustus demanded it. This is not meant to be viewed as a triumphant, wonderful story. When you read this, this is not a triumph, especially if you end at verse 7. This is a sad, no room at the end kind of story. And just how hopeless and impoverished they were, it says in verse 7, she gave birth to her son. She wrapped him in just some linen clothes, some cloths. And you know where he had to sleep? In a manger. A feeding trough. If you stop on that, compare the power of Augustus, this young couple's situation is destitution, sheer poverty. Sheer poverty. We don't see this right away because we know the story. So we instantly jump to songs. We instantly jump to Christmas plays. We instantly jump to triumph. But if you just read this for the first time and you read Caesar Augustus and Joseph and Mary and a baby in a feeding trough with animals, this is completely polarized situation. This was the first time reading it. I was thinking through, if I was an agnostic, and I, know, I didn't know the story and I read this, I would say, this is terrible. How sad. Is, is, this, is this God's plan? You've got to be kidding me. The God of the, this is his plan? J.R.R. Tolkien calls this moment in a good written story a eucatastrophe. 
right when life seems to be at its lowest, there was no place for them at the inn. That's supposed to be no place for them. Their baby's in a feeding trough, right? When life is at its lowest, glory behind the curtain is ripening. Waiting to break in and turn reality on its head. It's true for you. When there's no room for you, when you feel like, man, I've got, I, I have nothing, glory is ripening. In this story, the presence of heaven is chomping at the bit to explode out of nowhere upon some lowly, unsuspecting shepherds, other people that are destitute and poor. That's the point. God's mightiest and his best warriors are anxiously waiting to overwhelm a sleepy, dark earth that has no idea what's going to happen in a moment. They have no idea. Do you know what's going to happen next moment? We assume we do. Life is on this downward trajectory, and it's never going to get better. But what if God's involved? What if God is involved? And behind the scenes, glory is ripening. Just when the world was least expecting it, God enters. Watch how it reads in 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds on the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. It's a very po I love the way that reads. It's a very poetic verse, but you could just say poor, dirty, stinky shepherds were, they were just hanging out with their smelly animals. Really, some people were speculating they were there with the animals because they were, they were the shepherds that were, were taking care of the animals that they use in Jerusalem for sacrificial rites. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord, people refer that back to the Old Testament, when God's Shekinah glory led them through the desert, led them through the Red Sea, would hover above the temple when God's presence was there. It's his presence manifest in light. And it shone around these shepherds. And the angel said, don't fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you born this day in the city of David is a Savior. Who's Christ. And he's the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Not a king with a scepter. A baby. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God saying. And here's the point of this. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among them whose he's pleased. Glory to God. Caesar wanted glory to Rome. This baby came to bring glory to God. When all seems lost, the true champion, the true God of all finally arrives. Just as Mary said, while the mighty Caesar Augustus is sitting arrogantly and confidently on his royal throne, he and the world of power are positioning themselves to be brought down by a baby. This is God's way. This is the way he does it. And only with those with spiritual sight can see that this is God's way, where the humble actually is more powerful than the mighty. It's God's way. So a baby's born, the lowest of the low, and through this baby, peace for the world has come. 
peace not by the power of Rome and its iron might, but through the person of this baby wrapped in linen. Peace through this child. This is Pax Christus. Peace through Christ. It's different. It's a different kind of peace. Luke wants us to see that through the most unlikely of places comes what all the world has been waiting for. But how? How does this, how is a baby going to bring peace? I mean, it makes sense how Caesar brings peace. How does a baby bring peace? And subsequently, how does this bring God any kind of glory? Because we are conditioned to believe that glory only comes through power, superiority, might. How does this bring God glory? I don't understand. Honestly, the first if you just never heard this, how does this bring God glory? All I see is what shepherds saw. The angels come, but then they leave, and then the shepherds go, and all you're left with is a baby. Well, I believe what Luke wants us to learn, and he, what he's going to teach us all through the book of Luke, is glory is brought through this. And I, as I it's going to take you a little bit of time to get your mind around it, but glory, God's greatness, is revealed through the sovereign weakness of God. That's how he shows off, through his sovereign weakness. What? What does that even mean? I believe this is the path God chooses to really bring glory to himself, and it's unlike anything human beings ever strive for. Remember, God's ways are not man's ways, so we need to understand God's way a little bit. And so let's talk about these words, sovereign. Sovereignty is how the Bible wants us to understand this world, how it coalesces this world that we see with the unseen world behind reality, behind the reality that we see, the unseen world that's actually more alive than the world we see, and how they work together and coalesce. It's kind of like this picture of a braid. God uses historical events and mingles them with his heavenly promises. So the promises he gives to us, he works through historical events. Sovereignty means God is intimately involved with the everyday of the humdrum. Everyday life, he's working. He's working through your human decisions and actions in order to bring out the plans that he wrote into in history, in eternity. History is mingled and braided with heaven. God's foreordained plans, he works out in our shoe leather. That's really what sovereignty is all about. Leon Morris, who's a commentator, he writes how sovereignty is used in this situation. He says, we should perhaps reflect that it was the combination of a decree by an emperor in distant Rome and the gossiping tongues of Nazareth that brought Mary to Bethlehem. What he, he was saying earlier in his commentary, Mary didn't have to go. Some, some scholars believe she did because she was, in a sense, Joseph's property. That baby was Joseph's property, but she could have stayed in Nazareth. But he believes the reason she left Nazareth is because why would a pregnant girl that's not married stay when people really are probably wanting her dead? So she's staying with Joseph so she travels with him and so he writes it like this married to Bethlehem at just the time to fulfill the prophecy about the birthplace of Christ Micah 5 2 O Bethlehem Ephrathah you who are tiny the king will come out of you God works he says God works through all kinds of people 
to affect his purposes. Go to the book of Acts. I want to show you. Luke also wrote Acts. Look at Acts chapter 2. We just read about how God's sovereignty was leading the Christmas story, but watch how Luke says it was also involved in the Easter story, the Good Friday story. Acts chapter 2, this is verse 22 and 23. Peter is explaining Jesus' life, and he said, Men of Israel, this is verse 22 of Acts 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus was handed over by the definite foreknowledge and plan of God, but you did it. Wait a minute. God, if God foreordained this, how can I be? Well, you did it. Wait, that doesn't make that's called sovereignty. It works together. How do we make sense out of this? We don't make sense out of this. We accept it. And we accept it in our lives. Do you really believe all things are working together for good to those who love God? If you love God, do you believe all your things are working together for good? Or do you fret? Do you despair? Do you complain and whine? Or do you trust? Trusting says, I believe in sovereignty. Whining says, I believe in me. Jeremiah 10.23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for a man to direct his steps. So correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. So God corrects, but we got to watch our ways because he might be angry. How does that work? It's sovereignty. Job says, 33, 29 to 30, God does all these things to a man, twice, even three times, to bring his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of light. So we aren't listening to him, so God does things to get our attention. It's sovereignty. God is right now arranging events in your life, right now. Both the great moments and the broken moments. So you and your loved ones have a an opportunity to respond to his life. Sometimes he lets you sin so you'll be so broken that you will run to him. You may not see this in the immediate moment because heaven is hidden from us. But God is using normal events to bring out your circumstances so you will have a supernatural life. That's sovereignty. Weakness is the next one. Weakness is the toughest. The road he most often travels to work out his sovereignty is not through victories. I'll say that again. The road God most often travels to work out his sovereignty is not through victory, but through man's defeat. This is so hard to understand. But when you read Luke, it's clear. God wins by losing. Look at it like this. No one, no one is impressed when Augustus uses his vast resources and his unchallenged power to gain glory for himself. It's easy to use the Rogan legions, the Roman legions, to tell 
a poor Jewish man to go to Bethlehem. That's easy. That doesn't bring him glory. But God shocks our understanding by sending the answer to our problems packaged in a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. This is the ruler of the universe? I'd like to see how God's going to pull this one off with that baby. It doesn't make sense to me. It's too unbelievable. It's too strange. It's too impossible to even imagine being true, and that's exactly how God likes it. That's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, he likes it. It is. It just is. Who else can do this? Who else can do this? Who else will tie both his hands behind his back to win a fight? Who else will allow themselves to be trampled on to prove his power? Only a person strong enough to rise again. That's the point. Can he use his power to resurrect even your life? Yes. But you have to believe it. That's the million dollar question for you. Do you really believe his power is made perfect in your weakness? Wow. Sometimes for me, this is the hardest part of the Christian life to believe. That in my brokenness, he's going to get victory. That's hard. We think it's the hero. It's the hero that's the best spokesman for Christ. We need more muscular Tim Tebow's and pretty Carrie Underwood's and articulate Ted Cruz's and the rich and well-dressed pastor like Joel Osteen. That's what we need. Because when people see their success, they will have to take note of Jesus. They'll have to stand up and take notice. Because they're the movers and the shakers. Look what God can do. But you know what God wants to do? He wants to impress the world with a faithful grandma. God wants to take the simple family comes to church but only owns a cat and three chickens. That's who God wants to use to impress the world. Jesus even tells his disciples in Luke 22, 24, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? I am among you as one who serves. So in summary, for Jesus, true leadership and success is found in becoming the least, the weakest. And then the final thing is of God. The wonder of weakness reaches its fullness in the example of God himself. This is called the incarnation, the wonder of the incarnation. The universe is king and creator joined the ranks of the lowest. He became weak and needy. He became human. He was born a baby. Why? Why? Here's my personal conviction. This is why I think he came as a baby and as a broken man. He wanted to win my heart. He wanted to win our hearts. Power, force, fist, and fire, and might, they don't compel love. They only compel fear. But willingness to enter into my plight, my pain, my struggle, forever, 
endears me to the man, praise Jesus. He's great. Go to Hebrews 2. It's amazing. Hebrews 2, 16 to 18. Verse 16 of Hebrews 2 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps. Angels are these massive beings. It's not who he came to help. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He became like us, this says, for two reasons. There's two specific reasons this passage gives. First of all, he came to understand our plight so he could perfectly express compassion, mercy, and empathy towards us in our weakness. He walked in our shoes. He knows us. I'll tell you, I'll never forget my freshman year of football. I'll never forget it. I went to a pretty big school in Cleveland. I went from a private school to this big public school, and I was scared to death to play football. I had really skinny arms, tiny arms. I was terrified. But to play in this football team, we had to do two-a-days for two weeks, and it was real two-a-days back in the day. We had three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, and we had those coaches that if you did bad, he wouldn't give you water. That's so stupid. Phil, do you remember those dumb days? So dumb. But after each day, we would go to the sledding hill. And we wouldn't go sledding down the sledding hill. We'd run up the sledding hill. And it would be after six hours of already working out. We had one of those coaches, a varsity coach. You know, he had a whistle around his neck, had a clipboard, and he would tell us, all right, we're going to run. Like that, we're going to run. And I'm telling you, I remember as a freshman, I didn't think I could do it. I looked up that hill, it looked like Mount Everest. And my legs are skinny too, so I really couldn't, I'm not going to make this. And I looked at my other freshman guys. They were feeling the same way. But the freshman coach was named Mr. Madden. And Mr. Madden understood that the freshmen were terrified. And he said, guys, run with me. Run with me. He's a great guy. We played our hearts out for I'll play my heart out for Christ. He ran with me. That's why he came. Second reason Hebrews gives for Jesus taking on a likeness of weak flesh is this phrase in verse 17, to make propitiation. It's a big word, but boy, is it a great word. It means God's satisfied in Jesus' death. He's satisfied. So in other words, Jesus came to bring peace with God through death. He came to bring peace. So Jesus' pax is a pax, a peace from death. It's funny, if you go back to Luke 2 again, go back to Luke 2 and look at verse 7. I never read this before. I was reading it through the commentary. And he said, if you notice how verse 7 is written, I'll just read it. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Okay, you read that, you don't think anything about it. And then he, the commentator says, well, then you have to go all the way to the end of, chapter, of, of Luke chapter 22. 
And there's a part that says they wrapped the body in linen cloth and placed it or laid it in a tomb. He's saying this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus came for, to die. Luke is pointing to his purpose, to die. Die to sin so we could have peace with God and one another. It's easy for Caesar to demand peace, but Jesus compels peace through his death. How does death bring peace? It pays sin's penalty and subsequently takes away its power. Death pays sin's penalty and subsequently takes away its power. Sin is what separates us from God and from each other. Alienation is because of sin. Alienation means I don't feel like anybody likes me. I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't feel like anybody gets along. All the races hate each other. Nobody likes each other. That's called alienation, and sin brought that. Sin is a virus, and it works in our pride, and it tells me I'm powerful. I'm so powerful, I don't need God to be good. I can do it on my own. I can achieve righteousness on my own. Sin lowers the exalted position of God, and it makes me think I can actually achieve equality with God through my good works. So I no longer see him as great, and I think I'm something else. Sin is sick. I no longer give him glory, and I steal it. Sin lies to us, telling us we are actually even better than others because we are king of our own world. So sin makes us use Pax Romana, power over others. So then when Jesus died, he died to sin on our behalf. And as a result, God no longer is angry. That's what propitiation means. He's, it's like, to me, the word propitiation means God is going like this. Beats his son. After his son dies on the cross, he goes, oh, I'm done. I'm exhausted. And I'm satisfied. So he's not angry at us. Not only that, but the cross shows us what we deserve. The kind of people sin has turned us into. We're the murderers of the Son of God. We aren't the kings. We're the criminals. We aren't better than others. I'm not powerful enough to obtain my own goodness because I'm the murderer. I am a sinner deserving the penalty Jesus received on my behalf. So when I see Jesus as my Savior, that's the title he was given, I finally begin to understand why he died. It should capture my heart. It should capture my heart. It should compel loyalty to him because he's never demanded anything. So as a result of what God has done for me, little tiny me, I should react as the shepherds did. Look what it says in verse 15 to 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned 
glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them because they were included. They can't believe it. It's for them. They can't believe it. It's good news and it brought them great joy. Why are people so miserable these days? Like truthfully, people are pretty miserable. I think it's because people think greatness comes through winning gaining power, being the best, having the best job, being significant, being better. We want the world to be impressed by our greatness. Come and see my glory, we cry. But in our heart of hearts, each of us knows we can only pretend at greatness because we look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning. We know who we are. So we have to put on greatness. We've got to put on a suit. We've got to put on makeup. We've got to lie to the world and it makes us miserable because we know we're broken we know we're weak I do I know I am the good news is because Jesus became weak for me I don't have to pretend anymore like the shepherds God has come to lift me up he came for me not so I can win again but so I can worship him because he's amazing came to rule my heart. question is, who rules your heart? Who's your ruler? Sin or the Savior? Westminster Confession writes this. Listen to what it says. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair, not a hair, can fall from my head without the will of the Father in heaven. That's sovereignty. Not a hair can fall from my head without the will of the Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit. It assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him forever. Have you ever asked, what do you really want? I'll be honest with you, what I really want. And this might sound strange, and I've said this a number of times. I just want one thing. I just want one thing. I just want to be there. I just want to be there. I want to be, I imagine, like a giant stadium. And it, in Cleveland, Cleveland had what's called the municipal stadium, and these big pillars that you, I'd always get seats behind a pillar, and I'd always look around and watch the baseball game. But I, I, just, I, I imagine heaven's going to be like the big municipal stadium. Even if I get a seat behind a, a golden pillar, I just want to be able to look around when Jesus finally is crowned. And then he just goes like that to me because he notices I'm there. I just want to see that. I just want to see him be crowned. That's it. But to get to the crown, you got to die. Have you? Let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, we thank you 
or this amazing story that's so known. It's our story. But in some ways, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You sent Jesus to get power, but he was a baby. So he could die. But he died for me. Thank you. I pray if anybody in here does not understand what his death means for them, I pray that they would really seriously, God, be haunted by you. I pray you wouldn't let them go. I pray you'd bother them until they realize that Jesus is the King, the Christ, the Messiah. And I pray that they'd bow their knee now before they have to later. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.